Blog Talk Radio. This is the TS Radio Network, and things are booming. Uh, the calls I'm getting from people about these horror stories and guardianship are just increasing by the day. And I'm glad I got Kaz helping me out. She's co-hosting with me, of course. Kaz, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. So glad to hello. be here this Friday night. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And um, you know, the thing is, this has become such an issue. And because so many advocates and radio shows, including ours, have shoved this in the face of the people in D.C., um, there seems to be mounting pressure to shut us down. And when I know more about that, I'll talk more about that. But just be aware that there are some strange things going on. So everybody hang on. One of the things I found out for a fact this week that I want to share, uh, people talk about having power of attorney. And they think that this gives them the power to direct medical care. It does not. It does not. You have to get a medical power of attorney in addition to your regular power of attorney that handles all your affairs and everything to um, oversee medical issues. You've got to give someone medical power of attorney. And, of course, as always, make sure this is someone you can trust. Not that whoever comes after them isn't going to accuse them of being untrustworthy and this and that and something else. Uh, You know how it goes in probate. You can stand up and say anything you want. Prove it. You can just say it. I'm telling you, it makes me sick. Um, There's another bill coming up in Pennsylvania. Elaine McMahon gave me a heads up on. And supposedly it's supposed to fix some issues in guardianship and Reading through it, it, of course, does little to nothing of anything. It is open to interpretation. Let me pull that up here really quick. Um, but it just, these, these fake bills that come out just absolutely make me want to scream. Um, this is um, House Bill 2425, okay? And this is, this is um, in Pennsylvania again. And uh, it says it would ensure a clear line of communication between departments that have oversight over long-term care facilities by requiring any allegations of abuse involving individuals over 60 that are incorrectly made to the Department of Human Services or the Department of Health be referred to the local area agency on aging for investigation, which is overseen by the Department of Aging. In other words, this is a dead bill. This is going to, (laughs) this is going to do absolutely nothing. Um, people are, I guess, apparently, um, making complaints to the Department of Human Services, which, uh, as far as I know, has always overseen nursing homes and so on. Uh, but, um, or the, they say the Department of Health be referred to the local area agency on aging for investigation. 
Oh, please. The, we all know that the agencies on aging don't investigate anything, and even if they did, no matter what they came up with, they're not going to do squat. So it's just another, in my estimation, this is my opinion, it's just another fluff and buff bill. Um, there, I get so tired there, of this there, stuff. There is an yeah. example. I, mean, I could ask. I could ask Mr. Shenanigans if if he would uh, reboot that that uh, video. Okay. There is a video, and how the scam is done is there is a turn. There's an attorney that is get it gets money from Montgomery County to be the attorney for the Department of Aging, and then he trolls the nursing homes, and then the court records. Um, in this shenanigans thing shows the guy who is already getting money from the county then petitioning for guardianship and then making his these wards pay him money to be the guardian so that's a huge conflict of interest and that is backed up with court records i can't remember it's been years ago since it was posted but the attorney is Robert Slutsky, and he is still, it, you know, practicing law. Is he working for the department right now? I don't know, but we definitely can pull up that. Or you can even do a um, a Google search of it over there at Shenanigans in Montgomery County Facebook page or on their YouTube page because it's shown okay. how it's done with court records, and it shows various victims and how the whole mm-hmm. thing was done. Oh, I'm telling you. But uh, yeah. And I brought up here the other night on air, too, about the PPP loans that came out during COVID and mm-hmm. how people, you know, applied for them. And we've got one glory hog who is listing their self as an attorney. They are not. And then listed a hundred and some people that supposedly are employees of them. Wow. Uh, yes gave them all a title, and then apparently applied for one of these loans, which I believe, I was reading the rules and regulations, is serious fraud. So we'll be tending to that. Um, You know, we have a hard enough time getting this stuff out there without these interlopers coming in and trying to figure out more ways to scam people and screw them. Uh, Go get a job. Find something to do, please. Anyway, let's get on to our yeah. guest here. She's been waiting patiently. Our guest tonight is Meg Tanner, and she's here in Atlanta, Georgia. And her older brother, Chris Tanner, Curtis Tanner, I'm sorry, um, he's he had a near-drowning accident in 2003. And the things have just gone downhill for this man since then. Meg has been waging a tremendous battle for him on his behalf. And we're going to be hearing about that tonight. So, Meg, you want to say hello to everyone? Sure. Hi there. It's great yeah. to be here, Marty and Cos. Thank <laughs> yeah, yeah. you for having me. Oh, you met. Hello. You met. Yeah. Hello. This is <laughs> this is a, a, a this is a complex story. This has been going on since I like I said since 2003. Now here we are in 2022. Figure the math on that one. And that this has tormented this family, tore them apart, ate them up. Um, I think this is really, really quite sad. And Meg, I'm going to let you start out. Take us from the beginning, if you can summarize from the beginning, to where he is today. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I am going to do my very best to do that. Of course, the story, I'm laughing not because this is funny, but because the idea of trying to sum it up, of course, is really challenging, right? Um, yes. So I will do my best. Um, so I want to just start off not really with disclaimers, but just, you know, sharing that my decision to come on here is not something I've taken lightly, right? put a lot of thought into it. Um, and my biggest concern about doing this would be to somehow dishonor my brother, Curtis. Um, right. But I made a promise to him um, when we were in regular touch that I would speak up for him. Um, he asked me to do that regularly. Um, and, you know, eventually got to the point where I think now if I were to even ask him, of course, we haven't been in touch with him. He's hidden right now. I'll get to that. So I don't have the privilege of asking him. Even if I did at this point, I think he would be afraid to say yes for fear of retaliation. Right. Um, and I know, Marty, you and I have talked about, you know, the whole um, Stockholm Syndrome, right? That at a certain yes. point, um, the war just to preserve his, his, his life and any, it's really his life and his, you know, um, safety has to, you know, go along um, with um, whoever's taking care of him. And so, and I've given him right. all along full permission to do whatever he needs to do, including cutting me off if that's what that means. So I wanted just to say that um, I'm here because I want to be a voice for him. Um, I also want to say that it's very important to me because I have deep health spiritual beliefs that I went to the people involved directly before I decided to go, I guess you would call this public, right? Um, yes. I have uh, made many efforts, including 25 and 42-page letters, respectively. I've showed up at people's doorsteps with the proverbial olive leaf, um, begging um, who I consider, you know, two of the, the key players in this in terms of um, his guardianship, just begging them to do, to do right, to talk to me um, about this, and they have refused. And so... Um, Anne Lamont is one of my favorite theologians, and she basically says, you know, you own everything that's happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write or speak warmly about them, they should have behaved better. And, um, yeah. you know, I really wish that people had behaved better. <laughs> um, yeah. haven't, and I feel like it's important to get the story out, not just for my brother, but for all the people that are going through this. So yeah. um, I, I think it's important to say, too, that when I really discovered this, um, clearly in 2016, I was clear about what had been done to my brother. I never in a million years believed that I wouldn't be able to make it right. Like when I saw what had actually been happened, because I had been lied to for a long time, and then when I actually went to see him and got involved with him, um, I just never in a million years thought that there wouldn't be someone, some professional, somebody, um, or even the people that had done this to him that would change their mind. And um, if I had known what I know now, I think I would have screamed a lot louder um, at the yeah. beginning. I don't know what that would have looked like. I don't know if it would look like chaining myself to the front door, doing a hunger strike. Um, but I just didn't imagine that people wouldn't agree with me once they saw. And I was basically right. encouraged to document everything. And so that's what I did, you know, upwards, probably close to 2,000 documents at this point, including, you know, everything, oh, yeah. emails and pictures. Um, right. And yeah. so I think that's just kind of, um, it's really the other thing, the last thing I'd like to say in terms of my, you know, introduction disclaimer is just that 
Um, it's hard to describe the impact, of course, this has had on my brother's life, but also the lives of those people who love him. And so I definitely don't want to make this all about me because it's all about him. But I think it would be, um, you know, negligent for me not to speak on behalf of the families who are impacted by this. So as right. a result of going through this, I've been diagnosed as of, summer, as of the summer with PTSD just from oh, wow. witnessing what I've witnessed and seen him go through. Um, and I've developed insomnia. I can honestly say that there's only been a handful of nights since 2016 that I have slept peacefully, and those were nights that I was deluded into thinking that attorneys were actually going to be able to help us and were fighting for us. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, so it really does affect the families um, that are yes. going through this. Um, but I'm here. I'm speaking up for him um, and hope really that hearts will be turned. Um, whether that's, you know, officials or people, um, family members that have been, you know, involved in this, um, I guess I'll call them on the other side, Um, and also that systems would be changed for him and other victims. So um, I guess I could take a breath if you like. Yes, oh, that's Um, fine, that's fine. You know, the thing is, Meg, you know, these families get into this, and for some reason, it's a rarity that the family sticks together. It, it truly is. And usually they'll, what they do is they find one family member who is driven either by greed or jealousy or mm-hmm. something. And usually it's a long, uh, a lifelong history of this behavior, this antagonism towards other family members. Um, it just happens in families. And in these situations, these are the people the attorneys and guardians are looking for. These yeah. people that already have questionable problems. And they look for these people because they're easily manipulated. And they use them to drive a wedge into the family to keep the family uh, in an uproar and fighting and trying to defend themselves. And that way you're not near as, um, what do I want to say? attentive to what is going in most cases people lose right yeah that's very profound yeah yeah that's very applicable marty to what's going on here so i'm just jump in you know i told you jump in if i if i'm trying to take take a breath but please jump in at any time but i'll just start up a little bit talking about him um because he's the, the most important person here we grew up in decatur georgia um when there were six kids he's the second i'm the youngest um, my brother is very respected by his classmates. I'm actually getting really painful texts from his classmates because they're celebrating his 50th reunion this month, and they really want him to be there. So he was very loved in high school. He attended Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and he helped found one of the largest campus ministries in the world called Campus Outreach. Um, and uh, he also joined the staff of one of the largest churches in Birmingham, and he's wow. impacted many, many, many people through that. And one of the um, silver linings of this really painful experience has been meeting people whose lives he impacted. And what they will usually tell me is that, you know, your brother, people don't know this, a lot of people don't know this, that my brother would come to my dorm room, you know, late at night and bring something to encourage me and just his humble, loving presence, his love for, and his love for people has always been um, really evident. And then he um, married and had two sons and a daughter. um, uh, And that was, you know, he stayed in Birmingham. So when he was, 
when he was when I was six, he went to college. So one of the issues that's come up is, hey, you didn't really even know your brother that well. You know, why are you getting yeah. so involved? Well, that's true. You know, I didn't know him. Um, I remember him coming to Atlanta with his frat brothers. So I mean, I did have connection with him. Um, and you know, when he went over to, when he had his family, he disconnected even more. So I got involved in his ministry in 1985, and so I did connect with him at that point. And I actually met quite a few people that have been in touch with through this situation. Um, And then he was in the accident, as you mentioned, in 2003. And I had been very ill and had kind of a miraculous recovery. So I would send him letters, you know, and meditations and Bible verses just encouraging him. So that's really kind of just, you know, a little history on our relationship. Uh Um, As far as the history of the guardianship, kind of the initial history and I will say, Marty and Cosette, I feel like I have a lot of information, but I feel like this is the most important information is how the guardianship was um, put in place. Because as you know, one, I didn't know this before, but once that is in place, I tell my friends, because they don't understand naturally, because it doesn't make sense, um, right. yeah. overturning an abusive guardianship is very similar to trying to overturn someone's conviction in prison, right? Right. They get convicted of something, the DNA clears them, but it takes them years to get out. And so I think it's so important because, you know, we've tried to correct it on the end, but and the other thing is that I actually wasn't involved in this initial process, but I've had a very unique vantage point and that a lot of the people that were involved on both sides were sending me were sending and have sent me emails. And then, of course, since getting involved, I've gotten all the documents. But um, it started in 2003. As you mentioned, he was on a rafting trip, father-son bonding trip with his church, and he got pinned on the bottom of the river. Um, and it was negligence um, on the company. Um, the company, and they, it, was, it was obvious negligence that they didn't know what they were doing. It was a new person. Then. So um, obviously that impacted him. Um, and it wasn't real obvious, but, and I, again, I wasn't there, so this is secondhand, but I've heard a lot of information from people that were, mostly one of my siblings, my sister, who's always been really close to him. Um, and, uh, you know, it impacted him, especially physically. So they spent a long time trying to figure out between 03 and really, you know, um, uh, I guess maybe 10, 2010, you know, trying to figure out what's exactly wrong with him. And I heard there were a lot of different diagnoses, right? But he was still working at the church in a lesser um, stress, you know, less stressful role. But he was still, he was still working, not hospitalized. He was at home. Um, and then in 2009, um, something that is kind of related, Marty, to what you were saying um, is that, and it's, Difficult to talk about, but important because he's become such a key player is that one of my brothers, I have four, one of them um, who had been previously very close to Curtis, um, they became estranged in a really difficult situation, um, and um, it was it was bad. Um, and there was a major cutoff and just um, some things that I would, you know, things that I saw later that just let me know that it was just a really bad, a bad situation. Um, and so that, that becomes significant later. And, uh, so my parents get divorced (laughs) in 2010. Um, I forgot to mention earlier that I come from an unusually dysfunctional family, which has not helped at all. So after 57 years of marriage at age 85, my parents got divorced. Oh, wow. So, um, yes, that's what everybody says. 
And so that created more division in my family, especially between, I'm going to call that other brother going forward OB. I'm not going to use his name. So that created more division between OB and Curtis um, because they were on different sides, my mom and dad. Um, In 2012 is when I first began to get personal just concerns. He was sent to Atlanta in 2012 on a commuter bus. Um, to attend his uh, high school reunion. So that would have been whatever. I can't do my math right now. But that would have been their last reunion, right? And he gets sent over on a commuter bus, and he has a walker. I can't remember if he had a wheelchair, but he was not walking well. And I was given the message that both his wife and OB said that he was faking needing help. So that was my first major red flag because he stayed with me, and I took him to the reunion. And he was not he was not faking anything, right? He's struggling physically to get around. So mm-hmm. um, he began to share with me a lot of fear of I felt like I'm losing all of my rights and all of my power. I've been put on a small allowance, and it was just things that I didn't know enough, but it was enough to just make me think like there's something wrong with this picture. So that was kind yeah. of my first red flag, right? Then a year later, his daughter, who has always been the apple of his eye, she has Down syndrome. She was placed in a residential facility, um, a very nice one outside of Birmingham. Um, And at that point, Curtis begins to send emails that are very um, coherent, seemingly, um, to my sister about this decision between (laughs) he, between him and his wife, um, that you know they need to do something else. He needs to go somewhere. Basically, she can't take care of him anymore. It's just too much on her because of his physical needs. So my sister starts to get concerned, um, and um, he's calling her, but he's also sending her emails. And my sister at that point was going up to visit him from another city in Alabama. She would go there sometimes, and he would be by himself with his daughter, and there might not be anybody else there. They might have gone, you know, on a trip. And so she was getting concerned that he really was getting um, enough attention and care because he was managing a lot of medications. Um, you know, for the pain. I, I don't know enough about all the diagnoses he got, but it was it was almost at points looked like he it wasn't Parkinson's, but it looked like that, you know, because he had hard, okay. a hard time walking. So he could walk, but he spent a lot of time in the bed because he was in pain. And I think mentally, really, I'm struggling because of what I I'm not a doctor, but what I would consider, you know, some type of um, brain injury or you know, it was impacted from the loss of oxygen. But he wasn't. He was coherent. It was, you know, he was talking and, and writing emails, right? So okay. um, that was, you know, concerning. Um, and it was kind of like he was being told, like, this is what we're going to say, right? We're going to say that I have physical mental disabilities, and this is what we're going to tell people. And this is okay. why, you know, you can't take care of me. So it felt oh. a little planned, staged. Um, it just felt concerning, you know, to his friends and my, and my sister, so soon after that, he communicates with my sister that he wants a lawyer and is figuring out what to do next legally because I think he's suspecting, hey, I really don't want to be put in a facility, right? Right. So in 13, this is when everything – October 13, this <clears throat> is when things really get um, into the court system, right? So he's taken to a, a hospital in Birmingham, and he thinks it's for a sleep study because he's not sleeping, his wife ends up getting an injunction to keep him there um, because she said he was delusional, delusional. He was doing some things that were concerning. 
She then, a few days later, files an involuntary commitment in probate court. Um, and this is the wife. Thing, this is the this wife. This is the wife. So, okay. Yeah. So she's saying things like he's tearing up the office and then friends, because he has a lot of friends. You know, he's in ministries, um, just, you know, a lot of friends and, you know, some of whom I talk to, you know, on a semi-regular basis now. But, you know, they would rush over there because they were concerned and one of them got there and nothing was out of place, not one thing. Um, so people are just starting to have concerns. So about two weeks, no, we can have later um, they have a hearing at that same hospital. So he stayed at the hospital. They have a hearing to see if he can be released, right, if, he, if she's going to be able to involuntarily commit him to some type of hospital, psych hospital, some type of hospital. My sister gets wind of it, wind of it and goes there. The wife stands up in court and says, hey, I'm afraid to take him home. He's dangerous, and you know, I'm afraid to be around him. And I don't have a place for him to go. So the judge asked, hey, is there anybody here that could take him today? Because I'm not holding him. And my sister volunteers. So then his wife recants, no. And the the judge is like, no, he can go with his sister. He goes and stays with my sister. And they have a very nice visit. Um, And later my, uh, his, uh, his wife and the OB um, accused my sister of kidnapping him. Even oh. though everyone knew that's where he had gone. And wow. so, mind you, I'm not closely involved yet, right? I'm hearing things secondhand. So, um, you know, that said, and then he wasn't able to get his medications. And so the pharmacist, you know, actually encouraged my sister to call the authorities because I think she had filled all of his medication and the the wife. And so it was just, it was a, that was stressful, but my sister was like, he was doing fine there. You know, he was staying in, yeah. in her home with her and was doing fine. So after that, um, this is all happening like week to week. December 13, the wife files an emergency petition for temporary guardianship and conservatorship. Yeah, um, now I get something that was important. At the end of that visit with my sister, my brother asked his attorney to prepare a power of attorney so that his another dear friend of his could become his agent. Okay. So once he did that, then the wife, and I I believe it was granted, and then the wife filed an emergency petition, which I've been told really wasn't necessary, seeing that he had someone in place. I'm not an attorney. Um, There's no notice. There's no notice, and then his wife asserts he's a flight risk, so he's not in court, and my sister doesn't find out about it. So that happens quickly. So seven days later, she's given temporary guardianship, and he's sent to his first facility. I have about, I think, five now. Um, I'll call for his guardian going forward. Um, His guardian refuses to give him his medication, so the attorney who would actually testify in our last probate hearing, um, in what was that, 19, actually testified that he was going by and helping my brother with the distribution of his medication because the place he was in wasn't a nursing home. It was like in a city, you know, living. Right. And so okay. the wife was not even willing to do that. So um, let's see. People are expressing concerns, more concerns that they haven't seen the guardian acting this way before, you know, what's kind of going on. Um, I get emails from the OB 
saying that he's got these emails that my brother wrote and kind of the um, the implication is he's writing these crazy things and my brother's really angry about it because some of them were negative things about him. But mind you, he had gotten a hold of Curtis's laptop. So total invasion of privacy. And, um, and he's really angry. So that's another red flag for me. I'm thinking, well, if he's got this, you know, dimension. And so um, then in January 2014, um, my brother, Curtis, files a motion with the same attorney to dismiss his wife's guardianship. He said that he didn't want a guardian, but if he had to have a guardian, he wanted it to be the same friend who was, had been his POA. Okay. And the next day, he is given a neuropsych by a doctor. And um, I heard this from my sister that he was supposed to go to dinner with the gentleman who was going to, you know, he wanted to be his, uh, who was his POA. And he shows up and Curtis is gone. And Curtis was taken out, you know, by his family, his wife, and told my sister that he, you know, couldn't call anybody. The phones were taken out of the wall. This is what he shared with my sister. This is the night before he was about to be tested. This is odd. Yeah. So, uh, all of this that you're talking, you know, this just builds this case for what we call torture-based bonding. And they start mm-hmm. manipulating the person and taking things from them, isolating them. And all the time is the threat, if you don't do what I tell you, this could get worse. If you don't do what I tell you, even I will leave. And then what's going to happen That's to right. you? And it is, it is the Stockholm Syndrome, but on a guardianship level. It's called torture-based right. bonding. And so that they will side in with the, their persecutor, um, just mm-hmm. out of self-defense, self-preservation. They don't believe what they're saying, but they want you to believe what they're saying for self-protection. Mm-hmm. Because if you go outside the script, things could get really bad. And they do. They have for people. And this is what I'm hearing, this taking things away from him, his communication, visitation, you know, all of this stuff. Um, this is what I'm hearing. This has been a very, what do I want to say, a specific plan. To psychologically right, exactly. put you in a specific situation, but go ahead. That's I'm exactly sorry. right. And, no, thank you. And you're all. You know, I would say you were a psychic, but it's not. No. As sadly, is that you've seen this so much because literally the next thing I'm looking at in my notes is exactly what that you're. You know what you're saying, and that's what has been really come clear to me. I've been doing you know, involved with this for what's coming on seven years is that this isn't something that just happened accidentally. If it were that, it would be different. From what, from my, from my viewpoint, it looks like it has been a very sinister plan. And that's the, the, the thing that, you know, that's what I feel like is clear to me, you know. Yeah. Um, so going on from there, um, this is exactly what happened, exactly what you said. So that was on, he was assessed on, that was in October, and I've read that report by Dr. Marson, um, and it basically said that my brother had mild dementia. It says, a condition which does not clearly mandate severely restricted living environments or severe limitations. It said he should live in a supportive environment where a range of his yes. needs, including circulation commute, encouraging Mr. Tanner to continue to participate in activities that he remains capable and confident of performing would be important for his mental health. 
So that's yes. what is said in the um, his report. But on February 2014, the Guardian asked for a competency hearing, and my brother was declared incompetent. Oh, no one at that it. time saw him. Yeah. I can't say no one, but I'll say very few people other than his wife and OB saw him as incompetent. In fact, the people around him, his, his attorney at the time, testified in our probate hearing that he felt found Curtis competent or he never would have you know, met with him and that someone in his office that had a lot of experience with dementia um, and that type of thing um, would you have know, never... And the, you know, the, Meg, the thing is, many things, including age, can cause dementia. Many things can mimic dementia, like you know, a UTI. A severe vitamin B12 deficiency, a vitamin mm-hmm. D3 deficiency can all cause symptoms of dementia. These things are never checked. They're, they are right. never checked. And even if they are and a, and a low level is identified, they never supplement to bring that level up and help clear that confusion and everything else. But the idea, and this is what really bothers me, is that the public is being brainwashed into believing that because an elderly person starts becoming forgetful and a little mindless here and there, I mean, for God's sake, you get old, get over it, uh, that somehow they need to be locked away, that they need to be, you know, this is the thing to do, when what they need is more contact with the family. What they need is more interaction with people and to feel safe. And that will alleviate yeah. a lot of these symptoms. They need to be communicated with, talked to, talked to. Mm-hmm. And sure, maybe they talk a little crazy once in a while. Who doesn't? Right. Give me one person who doesn't. And maybe this is a little more and- pronounced in the elderly, but that to me is not a reason. But see, the public is being conditioned to think if there's any yeah. signs of this, oh, put them in a home, put them, lock them away. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to take over everything. Yeah. Go ahead. And Marty, to your point, um, in 19, um, you know, at that point, I'm I'm jumping forward, but I'll come back. He had not been reevaluated. And we're like, wait a second, because I'm going to tell you about his clear diagnosis in just a second. But at that point, he had not been reevaluated. And when they they finally did it to comply with what our attorneys were saying and and his vitamin D levels, I read the report, the, the internist report, were so low. Vitamin D level, vitamin D made my MS symptoms go away, you know, and Lyme yeah. symptoms. So I know how powerful vitamin D is. His vitamin D level was, it was low enough to cause rickets. Oh, my God. Low enough to cause rickets. So, you know, forget the vitamins because he, he ends up being on, on dozens of medications. But on March yep. 4th, so this is three, just a couple weeks after he was filed, declared incompetent, my brother, bless his heart, I've read the letter, and I titled it basically, you know, his letter to prison. He um, starts getting pressure. I won't, so, I won't say well-meaning church folks because I don't think it was well-meaning because they really didn't know. Maybe they didn't intentionally know what they were doing, but they began to pressure him and to say this wasn't right, to um, want to, dis, you know, to dismiss his wife as his guardian, you're married. That's not the Christian thing to do. And, of course, I will say my brother loves his wife. And so my brother um, filed a revocation of the POA of his friend and changed his mind and, um, and also withdrew, um, you know, any type of um, trying to overturn um, uh, 
the, the guardianship. So at that point, I mean, that was devastating for people that were involved in trying to help him, you know. But to your point, what he told us is that he was told that if he didn't go along with her guardianship, that he would be restricted from seeing his daughter. He was his, his, his apple of his eye, and, um, and he was concerned. And I think there were also things communicated to him that, hey, if you, if you go along with it, things might get better for you. Um, but it really was, that was his ticket, what I call his ticket to prison. So he ends up going to a new place. Um, and then in 2015, we're getting like a year later or so, um, what I didn't, I failed to mention is that along the way, he was given a final temporal dementia. So it's considered a more aggressive form of dementia. And there's been, you know, questions about that. But that was his diagnosis. Um, and so in 15, there was an internist who begins um, reporting that my brother needs assistance, right? So now he's needing more assistance, supposedly, with bathing and dressing and grooming. Um, staff would say that's not true. Um, and then he ends up meeting a nurse at that place um, who actually thought about coming onto the, pro- the program. I think there was concern about HIPAA, but she ended up testifying for us when we went to probate court. Um, and uh, she was, uh, at, at a certain point, ends up being in communication with my sister. But she was very upset about what she saw because she was, um, you know, just seeing that my brother was um, – not having access to things that he should have, like a phone, um, and that he was being restricted from visitation, and that the doctor was saying things that they simply weren't witnessing as his everyday um, caretakers. So um, that then, there ends up being then a letter that's sent out by his guardian to multiple people and eventually is forwarded to me. I call it the non-compassionate letter. And I sat in a Mexican restaurant one day, and it took me about five hours to refute, not then, but later, everything that was just not true in there. And she talks and basically kind of pokes fun at the fact that my doc, that my brother said that he didn't sleep at night, or no, that he cried himself to sleep, and that she, he wanted her to take him to a movie. And she mocks that as if it's ridiculous and that he has to be lying. And naturally I'm thinking, how do you know if my brother's crying himself to sleep? I mean, I'm just reading these things and I'm like, this doesn't sound like someone who has compassion for my brother, I would say that was the most, you know, glaring thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, my sister gets a card from my brother saying that he's been shut out from using the phone and that she's on a no visit list. And then um, I guess what I'm trying to show here, I'm almost done with this part, but that it, it's a campaign. That's what I call it. So it's a campaign and it's a narrative to convince everyone that my brother is a lot worse off than he is. And so in 2015, there was a Facebook post made by his guardian and OB, and it is her describing their difficult journey. And I'm not for one second saying that I know anything about how difficult this has been for her and her children. Um, I'm sure it has been very, very difficult. Um, so I'm not in any way minimizing that. Um, but this is what concerns me is that she says, my husband is no longer here. His mind has been taken over Mm. by the disease, the FTD. He can sound halfway normal when he talks if someone doesn't know what's going on, but he has no idea what he's doing. One day he can be pleasant and the next day he can be very angry. It is absolutely horrible. I don't plan to post much more regarding his position because it's only going to get worse 
until it finally takes his life. Um, she also reports that that same doctor who's writing these reports for her, who I ultimately file a complaint against, has given him two to five years to live. So my mom and I'm like, I, you're basically, you know, my brother's in hospice. So I think it's important to note at this point that last year I reached out in a text thread with his guardian and just came out and said, I want to know my brother's prognosis, right? Because at that point last year, what would that have been? About seven years, you know, six years. It's past the time they said he would be alive. And I wanted to know how long he had to live. She snapped back and she said, why in the world would I say that? Because I never said anything about him dying. So I sent her the screenshots of the Facebook post and the email that she sent out to multiple people, and I never got a reply from her. So at that point, what you're seeing is someone who's presenting a case of someone who's near death, who's got this horrible disease. And if you read about FTD, it is a bad disease. It it causes dementia, right? It causes a lot of things. But what was concerning to me is that I heard them talk, when I say them, mostly her and OB, I heard them talk and read about FTD more than I ever read about my brother. So he became the diagnosis. He's no longer a person. Okay. All right. Let me ask, is he still in hospice What he, where he's at now? Is that a hospice facility? Oh, no, no. So we can jump a bunch. Okay. <laughs> we can jump a bunch, right? That's fine. So ultimately, yeah. you know, um, I can answer that question and then maybe go back. But he ends up um, going to a facility where I end up, I began visiting him in 2015-16. And that's when I discovered just how false the narrative from my perspective has been. So we would end up um, with his help. He wanted to file for divorce. We went through divorce court, and that was successful. We went through probate court, and I'd love to talk about that if we have time. Um, Mm -hmm. And at this point, um, the last time that our family, my family, when I say my family, I mean my dad, who's 97, and my siblings, all but OB, um, do not know where he is. He was essentially hidden from us after Father's Day of 21. So we went from being routinely banned um, and restricted, and now it's complete. So we don't know where he is. I can't answer your question. So I don't know uh. where he is, um, and we haven't been allowed to talk to him and um, or see him. I write him twice a month and I have to send them to his guardian and I am trusting that she gives them to him. But we're told that he's um, a friend of mine, a friend of his emailed me uh, maybe a month ago and said that he's being told that my brother's too unstable to see anyone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) This just, uh, I'm telling you, I'm so sick of hearing this stuff. I can't stand it. The the corruption, the lies, the ability of these people, and see that probate court, every time a motion is brought in front of it, that person sitting up there frauding everybody and calling themselves a judge, they are not a judge. They do not deal with law. They deal with code, statute, and regulations. They are a ministerial clerk or a hearing examiner, and I know people say, oh, are you saying that again? Yes, I will say it till you get it through your head. That is not a judge sitting up there. That is not. And they, they can't even be people who have a law background can get appointed to these, but they are contracted to the very agencies that you're dealing with. 
Mm-hmm. And every time a motion is brought in front of them, they get a percentage of the value of the estate. So, and like I said, I think in uh, Alabama and Georgia, it's like 2 and 3%, depending. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm, the idea that these people could just make these pronouncements, um, a neuropsychologist, there is no such animal. That is a... And if Reverend Ralph is on with us, he could speak to that. That is a term they have applied themselves. It has no meaning. But it's meant mm-hmm. to make them sound like they are more than what they are. And um, a psychologist, the word psychologist alone implies that you're dealing with something with the brain. Uh, you don't have to add the word neuro, but see, the people who don't decipher this stuff out, that sounds really, that's a neuropsychologist, not just your regular psychologist but a neuropsychologist. Oh, shut up. And um, yeah. I, this this stuff just absolutely wears me out anymore, Meg. It just wears me out. There is I'm no sure relief. Very, I'm sure it's very hard it's hard to hear. And, you know, the um, we went through, we, we tried to help him file for divorce only because he felt like that's the only thing that he could do. So um, we did that and then... Um, you know, had a very bad experience there. We had a um, GEL who was appointed by the uh, the, uh, the divorce judge. who was actually very helpful. Um, it seemed compassionate. So she said, you guys need to go to probate. So she appointed a GAL. We're thinking this GAL is going to help us, right? We're thinking she's right. going to well, help Curtis more than anything. And um, we met with her. She was very... Um, Oh, difficult. <laughs> if you read the, her reviews, I mean, I've never read reviews that bad. Um, the judge said, yes, you're free to talk to her. She seemed very reluctant to talk to us, um, chewed out my cousin because she sent her an email on a Friday night. Just very, very difficult. Wow. And then went out and met with my brother and showed him pictures of the divorce attorney. And because my brother didn't recognize the divorce attorney, who, by the way, is the only legal, well, I shouldn't say the only legal person, but the only, one of the few legal people, I'll say that, who actually fought for my brother. That woman was um, such a good, a, a good-hearted woman and had been fighting for things like this forever, and she got the whole picture, and the GAL actually accused her of lying and saying that she never met with my brother. I mean, she met with my brother where he was clear enough to say, I feel like I need to fall for this. And, of course, because he's incompetent, it would have been near impossible. And so the GAL went, not only went in court and said that that lawyer had lied about meeting with my brother and she didn't think it happened because he didn't recognize her because her hair was a different color and he's on, you know, 24 <laughs> medications. Um, and then turned around and um, said that my brother was happy where he was. And, I mean, oh I am God. not an angry person, but I can't tell you how many times I have visualized what I wanted to do and had to think through it. I will go to jail if I walk up to the front. But it's like you have got to be kidding. She met with us, me and two of my siblings, for probably two hours. That was a paid visit, you know, by someone. And then goes into court and says that, that Curtis is happy where he is. So, I mean, that's oh. the kind of stuff that would happen. Then she recommends this is when you really start feeling a little paranoid. She recommended, we had an attorney. We wanted to go back and use the same attorney who had helped him with the previous filing. She tells my sister that would be a horrible move and convinces us to use two very reputable attorneys who ended up on so many levels from my perspective and that of many others completely failing us. 
and um, she insisted we use them. And that's who my sister ended up um, hiring. And um, we were in probate court that got dragged out for over a year. And um, it was horrible. I mean, in terms of what they presented, I think they presented maybe 1% of the information that I gave them. Um, And to your point about the judge, even though we didn't feel like they did a a horrible job from my perspective, um, they actually – the nurse testified in court, the same nurse that I'm talking about was on the stand, testified, so the judge heard her say, I quit because of what I saw happen to Mr. Tanner. He had oh, a wow. DNR on his life, and he was in his early 60s, and his wife had a DNR on his life. I didn't see her very often, um, and she also testified that um, the friend of the guardians came in, and ended up pinning my brother on the bed because they were trying to get some paperwork from him, ended up being banned from the facility. So the nurse is sharing this, a reputable nurse, and the judge is hearing all of this, but will end up deciding that his guardian should stay his guardian, even though my brother wants my sister to be his guardian, even though we're asking for a state-appointed guardian, even though she's hearing that he's, you know, isolated, He's restricted from visitors. He doesn't get to see his daughter very often. I mean, just on and on. Um, and she still decided to keep her in place. Wow. And so that decision was made in 19. And uh, and she did advise that he wouldn't be isolated from his family, but he has. And that's just increased. Um, it, oh, my I God. I mean, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And they, the they're they're using you're, they're using the daughter that he adores so much kind of as a weapon. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. But she was asked in court how often he gets to see her, not very often. I mean, I would say of all the things, you know, and my brother has clearly communicated what he wanted to myself, my sister. I have I have dozens of pages, pages of his journals that he gave uh-huh. me um, for safekeeping, and he clearly states what's happened to him and what he wants, um, and all of those. And one of the things that he talks about the most is being so brokenhearted about not being able to see his niece. I mean, not his niece, my niece, his um, daughter. And last year when I was trying to communicate with his guardian, she actually has now prohibited me from even sending mail to her. So my sister and I would send things to my niece as if they were from my brother. So, like, when we would go to see him, we would get him to sign a card, right? And then we would send a gift because, you know, and say, this is from your dad because it was. And so I don't know how she missed that, but somehow she found out for the first time we've been doing that for, you know, a little while. And she texted me and said, don't ever do that again. It's confusing to her. And um, so I'm not allowed to any longer mail anything to my niece where she is. Oh, how can she do that? I'm sorry, but how can she prohibit? Oh, that's his daughter and that's his wife. Okay. Well, still. And she's her guardian. Oh, gee, many Christmas. Well, that's a lucrative deal, isn't it? (laughs) She's getting state funding and federal funding. Dang, this is a real moneymaker for her. Huh. Anyway, go well, ahead. And the sad part for me is just that, I mean, my brother has not had things that he's needed down to, like, eyeglasses. So when I started going to see him, 
Um, you know, his glasses would be broken. I called her one day and said, can I take him to Walmart? Is there a prescription? And she, I remember where I was on the interstate. She became very angry, um, and I was just shocked, you know, and said she was working hard, couldn't be replacing his glasses. And then when we were in court, she was asked um, about um, things like that, and she said, um, why would anybody who has dementia need glasses? Because he can't read. And I have him reading on various videos. Um, and then they asked him about her about counseling. I mean, that's the other thing I should mention. Like in the probate court, we were there three different times. And when we were there, things in terms of what the judge heard, even though our attorneys, I don't think that they're due diligence um, to represent my brother, um, and by the way, he was kept out of court. So every time we were supposed to court two well, different times, he was asked to be there. And she would have that same doctor, doctor, the one I filed a complaint against, she would have that doctor the day or two before would send a letter to court and say that it would be bad for my brother. And my brother, two different times, was dressed. He was in a suit. Um, one was for the divorce hearing. I went to pick him up, and naturally I couldn't because I'm not the guardian. Another probate hearing, he thought he was going to be able to talk to the judge in private headquarters. I got a call from one of the nurses because I got regular texts from the nurses. They broke HIPAA all the time because they were so upset about what's happening to my brother. So I literally got a message from a nurse to say, can you come over early for court because he's been, he's been shaved, <laughs> or, you know, and uh, it's not a good job. And so can you come over to help, you know, because they were all wanting him to be able to have a say in court and a letter would be sent saying, and the judge even was annoyed, but she didn't file contempt of court or anything like that because, you know, here you have requested, this is the second time you've requested that he come into court so he can at least talk to her. And, you know, at that point, he was still very coherent. And so they don't, they don't want him, they don't want anybody to see him because it doesn't line up with this narrative that they have, um, that they've painted, right? And right. so the fact that he wasn't even allowed to come into court, I mean, that's really heartbreaking. But back to her testimony, um, she, they asked her about recommendations that had been made by doctors. And one of those was for counseling. And they asked her, so have you gotten Mr. Tanner counseling? No. Um, even though, you know, two doctors have recommended it? No. Um, have you followed up with a pain specialist? No. Um, and when they asked her why she hadn't gotten him a therapist, she said, well, what would people with dementia and FTD talk about in counseling? Oh. She said that oh. on the stand. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What would they talk about? Huh? <clears throat> wow. And so wow, my brother wow. really hasn't, my brother really hasn't, you know, hasn't gotten the things that he needed, has needed. Um, and I have, I guess, a short, well, not a, it's not a short list, but it's kind of a long list of just some of the things that I, you know, discovered during my visits. I ended up having 35 visits from 16 until um, 2021. 20, and a, a lot of those times I was banned and nurses were sneaking me in. Um, that happened regularly. So mm -hmm. after the divorce hearing, um, the first one was postponed or something like that. And I, I called the facility because we're in town. And um, I, I forgot to mention this. We went to see him before that hearing, and the director threatened to call the police on us. 
we got in the facility because the nurses didn't know. They let us in, like, you know, and then my brother, who hadn't seen him, oldest brother in years, was there. And uh, so we had to leave. My brother, we saw Curtis. He wanted to go to lunch with us, and we were not allowed. And she said, if you don't, my brother said, what will happen if we don't leave? He was very emotional, the brother who was coming to visit. And they said, well, we'll call the police. So um, after the hearing was postponed, I called the facility to talk to Curtis. And uh, I was told that we could no longer talk to him. And um, by the time I got back to Atlanta, I had a phone call from an unidentified number. And it was a mystery nurse. And she said, listen, I can't tell you who I am, but you call here anytime you want to after 3 o'clock because we're all devastated about what's happening to your brother. So it wasn't just oh, well. family that was upset. We are regularly hearing from nurses that what's happening, you know, isn't right. Um, they were constantly asking me, how did this happen to your brother? One nurse took me into his room while he was eating down the hall and just said, you know, I don't understand how did this happen. Um, the other thing that I discovered is that there were major restrictions on visitors. Um there was a list of visitors, and then when I began to call some of those people, like church people, they would tell me, Meg, I had the weirdest experience. After I would visit your brother, I would get a phone call, and the phone call would be questioning me is to, and basically trying to convince me that your brother was faking me out, that he really wasn't doing as well as I thought he was. Oh. And... Yeah. So one of the phrases. So he, he he's got dementia, but he was plotting against you. <laughs> I see. He's able yeah. to marshal up. So that's that's yeah. that's and that's been shared more than a few times that Curtis is able to fake people into. Now I'm not saying I need to say this. One of the false narratives that's been created about us is that we don't think that my brother has any problems. That we think he could live on his own. That's far from okay. the truth. But I can tell you that in my visits. He and I would sit and talk. Sometimes my visits were as long as 10, 11, 12 hours. I would stay as long as oh, the nurse wow. would let me. One time, one time a nurse told me I could spend the night because they could see how good it was for my brother. Uh, at least yeah. that's what they said. And um, he would be coherent most of the time. After my first visit, his guardian told me, you know, if you want to come back, you can, but it will only be for you because Curtis will never remember your visits. When I went back, I don't think she ever thought I would keep visiting, but when I went back, he remembered where we went to eat, like, four weeks previous. I'm not saying that he doesn't have dementia. I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying – but like I told one of his family members who accused me not too long ago of not believing in science and ended up hanging up on me um, and told me to get an attorney if I ever wanted to talk to him, he said, you know, you don't believe in medical diagnoses and you don't believe that, you know, your brother has FTD and – you know, that he's got these problems. And I said, it's not that. It's just that no diagnosis could ever justify what's been done to him. You right. know, that he has been really much, I would call it being um, being made a POW. He's lost most of his rights. There's been times he couldn't send out mail. Um, there's been times he couldn't use the phone. He rarely gets to go out anywhere. Um, almost, I would say 80% of the time I went, he needed his nails and his feet clipped or a haircut um, or a shave. He would not have basic things that he needed, definitely no creature comforts. One time my dad and I went to Walmart and bought him a CD player and some workout shorts, and we were 
chided for that because we were told that he would never be able to figure out how to use a CD player. And most times that I went to visit him early on, when I would come in his bedroom, he would have on Christian music on the CD player. Not saying that he Uh didn't need any help, but why would you want to deprive someone of having, you know, of music? Um, And then I think, Marty, just a lack of medical care. I mean, yes. I have a, well, I have a doctor you, who miraculously you have you, know, you mentioned say, I have a doctor who miraculously healed me. I mean, killed me, and my that doctor looked at some of his medical stuff and said, "Meg, I would give anything to try to treat your brother. If I couldn't cure it, cure it, at least I could yeah. slow it down or make him feel better." And there's been, I mean, I don't know of really any rehab. I could be missing something, but I don't really know of anything that he's gotten other than dozens of medications. Well, and see, and this is what concerns me. Why all these medications? Um, you know, mm-hmm. I talk to people all the time that talk about, oh, I just feel so bad and I'm taking all my medic. What? How many medicines are you taking? Well, I take six in the morning and eight at night, and then I have these that I have to take in the afternoon. Well, look what you're putting down your throat. And you wonder why right. you don't feel what you cannot load your body. No one's body can be loaded with all these toxic medications and expect to improve with anything because these things are and destroying then, you a day at a time. And yeah. then, body, what they would do is the GALs and different people that were assigned to come in and talk to him, you know, to evaluate him, they would come in and wake him up out of a dead sleep. And what we were trying to explain to them is, listen, my brother, and I am not exaggerating, my brother has had nothing to do since 2014, other than when people took him out, but eat, sleep, watch TV. There's an occasional game of bingo. In his first facility, the average person was 20 years older than him. His guardian blamed him on the fact that he had FTD, he got it in his 60s, and that there's no other place to send him. So these are people who, bless their hearts, we're walking around with baby dolls. I was there one day, and one of the men had feces in his hand, and I had to go get one of the directors, mm-hmm. the staff, to come help him. And bless their heart. But the point I'm making is that's where my brother was. So he's been in these places where there's really there's no nothing to do. There's sensory deprivation. You were on right. at one point. I think I counted about because one of his nurses would always tell him, Curtis, you have the right to know everything about your medical treatment. So she gave him a list of medications. The guardian accused me last year of, like, stealing that or getting it, you know, unlawfully or something. Well, my brother gave it to me and, and my sister, and it was so many medications. Somebody looked at oh it, and, you know, so they might be contraindicated, but it was so many um, medications, right, that he was on. And so – these, one of the GALs said, well, your brother seems so confused. And I said, listen, when I get there, I have to wake my brother. He doesn't have anything else to do. I want him to sleep because that's his only escape from hell. So when you right. wake him up and you don't give him time, how long do you stay? Well, 15 or 30 minutes. I mean, my sister and I have noted that. I would stay there for a long time, and yet the first that you're just trying to come out of a drug-induced stupor and depression yeah. from being literally, be, you know, and it would take him a while, and then we would be talking. I mean, I have so just my brother and I talked about everything under the sun. And, you know, I think some people think, oh, you went to see your brother and you felt sorry for him. And, no, my brother and I, after years of not really being that close because of him being so much older, et cetera, 
he became a really good friend. I mean, I I really miss him. I mean, we were talking. Um, he was talking to my sister on the phone. He was talking to me on the phone. We would have Bible studies together on the phone. We would worship together, pray together, laugh together. Um, I was able to take him out until 2017. I went over um, one Saturday, and I would always text her when I was on the way over. And I want to say that particular day, I didn't. I think that may be what happened. But I got there, and um, he had a little bit of a cold, got it checked out with the nurse. He didn't have a fever, and I asked him if he wanted to go out. He did. We went out, had one of the best visits we've ever had. Little did I know that would be my last time I would ever be allowed to take my brother anywhere. And when we got back, she called me on the way back and said, you know, where are you? Um, You've, you know, um, your brother missed his medicine. And so, you know, so I get back to the facility, and one of the nurses, Joyce, she took me in a broom closet, and she said, Meg, I just want you to know that this isn't fabricated. We weren't worried. You do what you're, you've done what you always do when you come over. We were not worried at all that he didn't miss his medicine. She said, it's a setup. And before I could get home that night, I had a long mm-hmm. message from the guardian saying, you are no longer allowed to take him out. You have very bad judgment. You put your brother in danger, and you are you know, basically banned until further notice. She did let me start taking him out again. I mean, she did start letting me come again, but I wasn't allowed to ever take him out anywhere. She gave one exception when I took him out with my dad. My dad came over, wow. and my dad was like my supervisor. <laughs> and I mean, uh-huh. you know, people were people entrust me. I have an academic coaching business. You know, hundreds of people have entrusted me over the years with kids, all types of kids. And so, you know, just the idea that I put my brother in some type of danger, it just it was really sad, and it was from that point forward that, you know, I wasn't actually allowed, none of us were, to take him um, to take him out. Yeah. Wow. That is really pathetic. I, uh, and it, what galls me, Meg, is that there is no extreme these people won't go to to try and control that, that individual. Um, anything like you taking him out for the day upsets them because it's it, they've, they've lost control for that time and what might you be saying to them and what right. if, you know he's just fine while he's out with you how's that going to look if we go to court you know what i'm saying this is what they're thinking about uh you know i had asked you earlier and i want to ask you again what was at stake here monetarily now there if from this accident he had that set all this emotion i'm assuming there was a settlement yeah, there was, and I don't know a lot of details about that, but there yeah. was a settlement. I don't really know enough about that to speak to it. Um, I mean, ultimately, um, their house was sold, um, and uh, and then uh, uh, and then she ended up. Um, there was another house that was sold um, that was left to her, and without getting into that detail, and so um, you know, she, I would. Like I told, I talked to um, an assistant uh, attorney general about this um, at APS, and she described the last facility that we know he was in. It's outside of Birmingham. Um, She described it as the public housing of assisted living, Um, and I think that's pretty accurate. Um, It's I've I've visited two places he's been he's been warehoused in, and neither one of them. I would consider nice at all. Some nice people, 
but not nice facilities. And, uh, you know, and she lives very comfortably. And so, you know, when I was going to see him and my brother, you know, doesn't, he wouldn't have jeans without holes in them. And when I would ask about that, I was told, well, the reason he doesn't have more clothes is because he throws them in the center of the room. And then I would have a staff person say that's not true. Um, And so, you know, I was happy to get things for my brother. It was a blessing for me to do that, but it was, it just doesn't make sense to me that she's living in what would be considered a very, very nice, relatively brand new home. And my brother doesn't have some of the basic things that he needs. And what we heard a lot was that, you know, it was financial. When we were wanting to, um, when we were in probate court, we were told that she did not want a state appointed guardian because it would cost too much money. So my sister and the attorney, our attorney were like, okay, well, great. Then, you know, let his sister do it because that wouldn't cost you any money. She told the false narrative that my sister and my oldest brother were involved with helping Curtis because they wanted money from him, which couldn't be any further from the truth. <laughs> and at one point, you know, we even told the attorneys, you know, tell them we are more than happy to sign something saying we don't want any money. We just want to care for my brother. Now, I don't know how my brother's doing right now. I know that he's definitely deteriorated, and I know that he's been hospitalized um, a few times. And so I can't say what he could and couldn't do. But at the time that I was seeing him and when we were in court, I can't think of one reason why my brother could not have been in a home with home health care. And my sister was more than willing to do that. We even had people that came to us and said we would offer financial support if he could get in a better place, right? If he wasn't being put in these horrible places, you know, so we could have helped. She said in court that we didn't offer to help. And so, you know, I sent her a 26 page letter last year saying, Mm -hmm. listen, you know, we want to help and we can do better by my brother and I'll pay for a mediator that, you know, cause we lost in court. So I'll pay for a mediator. And my response, the response from her was don't send me anything more derogatory. I said, can I ask you some questions? So, I mean, that was one of the things is I've made multiple attempts to try to work with her. I get her being upset that we went to court. I get her being upset that he filed for divorce. Um, you know, and that we took her to court. But that, I think it's important to point out, too, that before we ever went to court, um, my sister filed, before the divorce court, before probate, my sister filed in 2015 a motion to review her um, guardianship. And, Marty, that was a document I mentioned to you that was so powerful, the legal document. But my sister filed a review to say, hey, let's do better, right? And so this was her basically attempting to say, we, you know, we need some of these things um, to be looked into. Um, And she was basically told, and I remember the other brother calling me, and at the time I had not seen Curtis, so he's kind of mocking this whole idea that she thinks he should be able to go to church. He's not been allowed to go to church. Since Aww. he was warehouse, um, when they asked him on what, what, when they asked her on the stand, do you know that Mr. Tanner wants to go to church? And she said yes. And the first go round, she said that she didn't let him go because she was afraid to be in the car with him, and that the church that he 
you know, basically was worked for and helped start the ministry there, that they didn't think it was a good idea to come there because it was too big. And so the attorney said, well, what about a smaller church? Because I connected with a friend of his who has a church down the street. And um, that was not acceptable either. The second time they asked her, the second hearing, she said that, well, he's sleeping on Sundays. Um, so he doesn't have, he can't go because he's asleep. It's like, well, yeah, he's asleep because he doesn't have anything else to do. So it just yeah. irrational. But, but back to the motion to review, those were some of the things that my sister was asking for. You know, can he get reevaluated? Can he see his daughter more often? And um, unfortunately, she was essentially told that, you know, take me to court. And she um, was concerned that she would not be able to um, win. The GAL who had been appointed was questionable and the attorney had some real concerns about whether he would be objective and so I wasn't involved at that point my sister ended up withdrawing that motion to review so it's not like we haven't we were trying you know to basically um, get some help for him without going into court so that wasn't what we wanted Mm -hmm. to do Um, but at a certain point when someone won't reason with you when every time you ask a question you are considered a threat. Um, there's retaliation. You're called crazy. You're told you're a liar. You know, at one point I had been at least 15 times, and she just insisted with my dad that I'd only been four. And mind you, she didn't always know every time I went, but at that point she pretty much did. And so just things that don't even need to be, you know, um, misrepresented, um, you know, were happening. Um, but I think the things that my sister was asking for at the time were very reasonable, you know, back in, in, uh, in with the motion to review. And Marty, do you mind if I read just a piece of that? Um, oh, Marty's not going to mind. Marty, okay. Marty will be, Marty will be right back. She's having okay, a technical. Okay, <laughs> yeah, go it's ahead no and problem. read it. So this was in the motion to review, and it said, you know, this was in 15 cause. It says there existed at the outset grave concerns about the selection of a guardian and conservator for Curtis, as evidenced by the allegations contained in the motion to dismiss filed by Curtis to his attorney, um, in which allegations were made questioning the motives in seeking guardianship and conservatorship over her husband. Due to his commitment to his marriage and fear of retaliation, Mr. Tanner chose not to contest his efforts to become his guardian. So then my sister comes in, and it says she has concern about his care and limitations on his personal freedom and wants the court to fully review all aspects of this surrounding Mr. Tanner's care so that they're being addressed, that his constitutional rights and personal freedoms are not infringed. He is currently a resident of a locked ward at blankety blank facility in Birmingham, um, it says it is important to note that guardianship conservatorship case was filed following her unsuccessful attempt to have her husband involuntarily committed at that commitment. We talked about that earlier because that was when he was released to go mm-hmm. spend time with my sister. Mm-hmm. It said under the current letters of guardianship, and this makes me sad, the guardian has unlimited an unfettered authority to direct all aspects of Mr. Tanner's life. An unlimited Mm -hmm. grant of authority in this case 
is neither appropriate nor just in light of the circumstances of this case and the facts and testimony which have surfaced since the guardianship was granted. Consistent with modern guardianship practice, the guardian must be sensitive to the protected personal freedoms and honor the protected person's right to express opinions about his care and activities. At this juncture, the guardian may not be taking into account Curtis's wishes and desires concerning his life, issues related to his choice of living, medical treatment, visitation by lifelong friends, the right to have a driver's license, or end-of-life decisions. Mr. Tanner's freedoms have also been severely restricted as to the use of telephones and visitation. He has been limited access to outside activities beyond the lockboard beyond the lockboard and it is clear that he is able to engage in a wider range of outside activities. And then my sister had been denied any medical um, information, you know, other than what she was given from my brother. And then it just goes on to actually say what a person's constitutional rights are. So that was listed in this motion to review the right to be treated with dignity and respect, the right to attend faith-based gatherings, my brother, who loves God and loves worship, has, I mean, he just has begged to go to church. Why, why should my brother be able to go to church for almost seven years? It, it's, it's unreal. I think that letter sums it up so perfect. So I've mm-hmm. been, because, and how I got into this is that I myself and my family, we went through, you know, the guardianship stuff and saw, you know, the same things. And and it's mm. so true, like, as a guardian, like, you, like, it's like when you think about being a parent, you are the guardian of that child. Like, you care about that child. That child is your world. And it should be the same These when you're a guardian of, of a person who's not a minor. You should have that same mm. care about the person, and they never do. Right. It's just, I, I feel that that letter really, really uh, like explained it so well. But another thing that I've noticed while you've been telling the story, I can't believe all the caregivers and how how loving they've been to you, telling you on the side. I can't imagine being the caregiver and witnessing what's going on. We had the same situation in ours. We have some caregivers to this day. I'm still friends with them. And they saw yeah. the same thing, and they're horrified, and there's nothing they can yeah. do about it. But yeah, I mean, really there really obvious. isn't. We have, we have some of the nurses. One of the nights before probate court, our attorneys refused to subpoena the nurses. I find that amazing. <laughs> so they refused amazing. to subpoena the nurses. Um, one nurse the night before, there were three probate hearings. So one of those hearings, I was there. I just finished helping shave my brother. Actually, he was shaving himself because she said the next day in court that he couldn't shave at all. He could shave, but it's kind of a mm-hmm. – I forgot to mention that when he filed for – or attempted filing for divorce, um, he was moved into a tiny room, and I got phone calls from nurses who were horrified and said, we know your brother has claustrophobia, and we have about uh, – I don't know how many empty, larger rooms, because I saw them when I went. I videoed them. They were empty rooms. She put him in a small room, and everybody felt sure that it was retaliation. My brother has kept his sense of humor, you know, and I don't know what's going on now, but up until 
June 21st or June, whenever it was, Father's Day, I talked to him. He still had a sense of humor. And my brother called, you know, me and my sister laughing about the fact that he had to put his dresser in the bathroom in the new the room that he was in. I mean, I would have to walk sideways to go by his bed. So when I would go, I would rearrange it to try to give him more room. So that was, like, mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, that happened as far as just um, retaliation. But um, yeah. one of the nurses pulled me to the side and just said, um, I really want to go to court um, with you. I don't know why your attorneys haven't reached out to me. Um, this doctor who keeps writing letters saying that he shouldn't go into court and talk to the judge, we know who she is. She used to be a director here, but none of her um, requests, none of anything that she's done is in his medical records. And, of course, this nurse is breaking HIPAA, but she's horrified. And she was like, you need to tell your attorneys to subpoena the medical records. You need to tell them to subpoena the, the visitation records because they're, you know, not not accurate. Um, and she never got to go into court because she was okay. She was subpoenaed the weekend before, and then they said they couldn't find her. Okay, we we've got about nine minutes left here. Um, oh my goodness. Um, again, HIPAA is not about protecting the patient. It's about protecting information from getting out about mistakes doctors make, neglect, abuse, about all of the people surrounding this individual whose file they're writing into, um, the things that they have done to this patient, so that you can't get that information and use it to file a suit against them, say, for (coughs) mistreatment or abuse or misdiagnosis or overdrugging. You can't get that information. And another Mm -hmm. thing, too, if your doctor makes notations, don't let them notate into your file directly. Make them do it separately because if they notate in their file, this again goes back to HIPAA, they claim they own that file. You do not. I don't know how we came to that, but we did. But anyway, like I say, we got about eight now, so go ahead. Okay, see um, I think one of the things that I did that I would just like to briefly share is, you know, this issue has become bigger because of people who are a little bit more famous, like Michelle Nichols, um, the Star Trek actor who recently died and went through something similar, um, and just connecting with some of the people connected her. And then, of course, the whole Britney Spears case. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had people reach out and sound like, oh, this sounds like what's happened to your brother. Um, and so I really just started thinking about the playbook, um, yeah. that is kind of a common playbook that everyone uses. And some of the things that I've noticed is that they basically have a strategic plan for pushing victims into the incompetent status, making false and exaggerated allegations, um, rushing things to court, keeping family in the dark. As you talked about, Marty, threatening and manipulating victims into thinking they'll suffer consequences. Um, focusing on the disease and not the person being deprived of medical care, overly medicating, isolating, removing meaningful activities, rewriting history and creating false narratives. When I really knew something was seriously wrong is when um, they started trying to say that instead of Curtis being thrown out of the raft, he, it was a suicide attempt. Wow. Like all these years, I've heard that he was stoned, and now all of a sudden they start saying there's no 
evidence of that. It was never talked about before. And they create this narrative that he's been crazy for years. So um, they also, you know, created narratives that he had mismanaged money at the church. I went to the head person, and he told me, I'm willing to come to court and say that he, your brother, never did that. So my brother's reputation ends up getting disparaged, right? Then they create false narratives about the people they were trying to help. Um, There's a a steady campaign of brainwashing. So I've run into people that are talking to the other side, and they'll think my brother is essentially a vegetable or an invalid. And I'll pull out a video of my brother talking just as clearly as you and me for a really long time, and their mouth just drops because they can't believe it because, you know, they've had no reason to think the person was um, was lying. So I think the retaliation is a big thing, um, exaggerating there and broadcasting gaffes when my brother would mess up they would call and tell everybody about it but not celebrate all the amazing things he's doing because my brother is a living walking miracle that um yeah. you know he's been he's done as well as he had at one point we were told that he was violent towards a staff member and then the staff member said nope i was being attacked by another patient and your brother stepped in and protected me so that's not what happened mm-hmm. um Silencing them, um, controlling people that, uh, you know, are uh, vulnerable. Um, For example, my dad. I have actually been cut off at one point from my dad could not call me from his phone. Either one of his phones, I was not allowed in his apartment because um, the person who's caring for him is on the other side. And so my own dad was restricted for me and had to call me and said, if I don't do this, I think that I will be evicted. Um, And so, you know, a put on the street, as he said. Um, And so he's even been controlled because he's on my side. He went to visit my brother and came back trying to talk to the other brother, right, saying, hey, (laughs) Meg's telling the truth, like, You've been lied to because I think it's significant, too, that the brother that's so on the other side and above, as far as I know, he's seen my brother once in seven years. So he's the only sibling that thinks that the guardian is doing a good job, and he's the only sibling who has no interest in seeing my brother. So that, if if nothing else, like I think that's significant. Um, Yes. So it's a lot more, but those are just some of the things I think that, um, you know, that are disused across the board. And um, right. I think the last thing I would say, Marty, is you can't have it both ways. And what would happen is my brother, if he had concerns, I mean, he, it's, he explicitly stated what he wanted. He wrote it. He said it. He wanted to go on court and mm-hmm. say it. When what he wanted would line up with her plan, like he called me one day and said, Meg, the plan was a mistake. And I said, what plan? And he said, oh, the plan that I'm supposed to say, I don't want to talk to y'all anymore. So when he would say things that would line up with what she wanted, he's confident. And all of a sudden, yeah. we should, you know, mm-hmm. should, should honor his rights and his voice. But when he would say things that go against her plan, like I want a divorce, I want a new guardian, or I want more visitation, all of a sudden, or something that made her look bad, um, then he's incompetent. And it's like it can't. You can't have it both ways. And then sometimes they talk about him like he's incompetent, and other times they talk about him like he's a bad person, like he oh, is wow. a bad person. And in one of my last 
supervised visits. I didn't mention all my visits had to be supervised after we went to probate court because <laughs> I'm no longer trusted. So it went from I can't take oh. him out to I have to have a supervisor every time. And in one of my last visits with him, his college um, friend went with me, and Curtis looked at both of us. We were sitting on the other side of a gate because it was COVID, and we were on the other side of the gate with mask on. And my brother looked at both of us, and he said, um, what did I do to get here? Did I hurt someone? Am I here because oh, wow. I physically hurt someone? And the roommate, I mean, you know, his friend looked at me like, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, the friend went on to say, I had no idea. He wasn't, you know, getting adequate care. Um, and that's the saddest thing for me is that he has definitely deteriorated um, after we lost in court and after COVID and the lack of visitation from us, all the restrictions, I think, hasn't helped. So he has been hospitalized at least two or right. three times that I know of. And when he would come out and he had forgotten things because of his hospitalization, I don't know exactly what happened to him while he was there, his guardian filled in the blanks for him with lies so that he yeah. literally – you know, came to us and said, why did you force me into asking for a divorce? So in his most vulnerable moment, instead of her trying to yeah. say things that would calm him, right, he was yeah. led to believe that. And so it just created yep. this really angst for him, like, who can I trust? Yeah. You know, can, who can I okay. trust? So, yeah. Okay. We've just got about a minute left here. Meg, I think we're going to want to continue this when you have time mm-hmm. and I'll be talking to you about that. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. We, had a very, very large audience tonight, and I want to thank all of you that were here, um, and those of you listening just on the net, I appreciate it, so does Cause, and uh, we'll be doing more on this. This is quite an extensive story, and there's a lot of twists and turns to it, but this man is being held prisoner, like all guardianship victims are. He's being held prisoner and has no say-so in anything. We'll be back next <laughs> Friday, if not sooner. Everybody have a good evening. Meg, thank you. Cause talk to you soon. And good night, everyone. Yes. Good night. Thank you so much. Thank you.